It's not me, it's you. You've changed. Hello, and welcome to episode three of Carnell Knowledge, which is all about relationships. No, not that sort. I haven't turned this into an agony aunt podcast. I might get more listeners if I did. I'm talking about economic relationships. And it's a thorny and at times complicated subject. Thanks to Richard Johnson in the UK for suggesting it. And because it's complicated, it's going to be a two-parter, with the next episode basically asking the question, are central banks sowing the seeds of the next crisis? The answer to this is almost certainly, yes, they are. But to get to that conclusion, we will first have to throw out a lot of economic orthodoxy. The heresy which I'm going to propose basically gets to the heart of most of what is wrong with modern macroeconomics. And that is that many of the most pivotal relationships that underpin how we try to manage our economies are not structural. That is, economics is unlike physics, where if you drop a heavy ball today, it will do exactly what it did 30 years ago, namely fall to the ground at 9.8 metres per second squared. In economics, much of what we took for granted 30 years ago no longer holds. Relationships have either weakened or actually changed. This is what the relationship bit at the beginning was all about, if you're still wondering. So what is so wrong with how we try to manage our economies these days? Let's start with how most central banks operate monetary policy. The macroeconomic models that most central banks around the world use can be massive, but at their heart, and what typically drives their policy actions, such as changing interest rates, is a very simple concept. That is, that there's a level of activity in the economy at which all resources are fully employed, and that attempting to operate beyond this level, which we call potential output, really only delivers higher prices and very little extra real activity, apart from perhaps some short-run effects. Refining this idea just a little bit more, from one year to the next, this level of output can increase, but it only does so if resources also increase say, as there is growth in the population and therefore labour force, or there is more capital machinery as businesses invest more. And it also can grow a further bit that we call technological progress, or in nerd speak, total factor productivity. What this means is, if you try to close the gap in potential activity faster than the underlying rate of growth of these resources adjusted for this technological progress, which tends to be fairly constant from one year to the next, Instead of faster growth, all you get is inflation. So, when your central bank, whether it's the Federal Reserve in the US or the Bank of England or any of the other central banks around the world, cuts interest rates, it's because they think your economy has the potential to grow more quickly. In other words, that there is an activity or output gap, and they're willing to allow economic growth to go a bit faster, knowing that the trade-off of some more growth for just a little more inflation will be a fairly good one. At higher levels of activity, more stimulus will give you more inflation, but not very much growth, so it's much less rewarding. One way of summarising this notion of output gaps and the trade-off between economic growth and inflation is in terms of the so-called Phillips curve. Now, William Phillips was a New Zealand-born economist who in 1958 noted that in developed countries there was a negative relationship between the rate of unemployment and wages from which there is a short leap to overall inflation. The implication of this relationship was that a government looking to achieve full employment and get re-elected 
would allow monetary policy to run a little loose, the economy a little hot, and so drive unemployment down, economic activity and wages up. This made everyone happy until the point that inflation picked up and deflated away all the gains. The truth is that although controlling inflation has always been one aspect of monetary policy, the real goal initially was full employment or maximum economic growth, and central banks were often no more than extensions of the government of the day. Runaway inflation wasn't that big a problem if it happened the year after an election had been won, as it could be squeezed out again in time for the next one, and the economy put back on a path of growth. And if your attempt to bribe the electorate with strong growth and employment in the run-up to the election failed, then the incoming government would inherit all the problems you'd created, giving you a better chance of being elected next time. All this worked reasonably well for a while. Economists suffered booms and busts during the 1950s and 1960s, but generally went forward several steps for every one that they took backwards in recession. But by the 1970s, the models based around the Phillips curve seemed to run into problems. What was happening was that the inflation that picked up at the end of one cycle was not being fully squeezed out of the economy by the subsequent recession, and even higher rates of inflation were associated with each boom and subsequent bust. And it's out of problems like this that we get a whole host of modifications to the unemployment wages trade-off to make it fit the real world, by famous economists such as Milton Friedman, Edmund Phelps, Thomas Sargent, Edward Prescott, Robert Mundell and Robert Lucas, sadly not Robert Carnell. Some seven Nobel Prizes for economics have been doled out for works tweaking or critiquing various aspects of the Phillips curve, like for example the expectations augmented Phillips curve. But to cut a long story short, we can summarise these as saying the following. One, if there is a relationship between the unemployment rate and inflation, it is a short-run phenomenon only. And two, in the long run, there is no trade-off between inflation and unemployment, only delivering higher and higher inflation. All of which led to the result that over time, it became clear that it took successively higher levels of unemployment to get inflation down, a process known as hysteresis and connected with the earlier stagflation concept that we covered in episode 2. By the 1980s, with pragmatic demand management policies falling out of favour and replaced temporarily and usually fairly ineffectively by various other policy experiments, the emphasis shifted away from how to boost growth and employment towards how to reduce what were then high rates of inflation without causing the unemployment rate to rise any more than was absolutely necessary. In other words, the goal of monetary policy was turned on its head, with a far greater emphasis on inflation management than demand management. Shifts in the approach to setting macroeconomic policy centred around the notion of rules-based policies versus the sort of pragmatism or discretion-based regimes that had previously been employed. Theorists noted that there were certain benefits to adopting a rules-based policy rather than pragmatically attempting to deliver an optimal short-run trade-off, since the mere process of tying one's hands to a certain rule conferred a degree of instant credibility and so lowered the costs in terms of higher unemployment needed to reduce inflation. Those Kiwis not only gave us the Phillips curve, but they also gave us the solution to its apparent shortcomings when, in 1990, the New Zealand government made an economics first by being the first economy to adopt a rules-based inflation target. 
Even though this still relied on a short-run trade-off from higher unemployment to lower inflation, the blame for this was distanced from the government by making implementation of the rule the job of an independent central bank, in this case the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. Today, many countries operate in an inflation target regime, including the whole of the euro area, the US, UK, Canada, New Zealand of course, Australia, Japan and even many emerging market economies. And for much of the period in which they've been in operation, they've apparently delivered the goods. Inflation has trended lower and lower, and at the same time, unemployment rates have also edged down in contrast to the short-run Phillips curve trade-off. Through the late 1990s and the noughties, and coincident with the widespread adoption of inflation-targeting regimes, although business cycles still occurred, they were much more spaced apart, and inflation peaks tended to always come in lower than they had in the previous business cycle, meaning that central banks didn't have to work so hard at squeezing out inflation from the economy with high interest rates. Peak interest rates also fell, and when inflation was well behaved, equilibrium interest rates could also be run far lower. Central banks during this period really must have thought that they'd cracked the philosopher's stone of macroeconomic demand management. Inflation was no longer the scourge of savers it had once been, and the business cycle, if not eradicated, had been at least tamed. Though, as we shall come to see in the next episode, all was not as it first appeared, and not for the first time, the economics profession now needs to consider whether one of the cornerstones of modern economics, even with all the adjustments that have been made to it, is really operating in any useful fashion anymore, or whether the entire modern framework of macroeconomic demand management needs scrapping and reworking. Alright, that's a bit of a cliffhanger, but it really would take far too long to answer that question in just this one episode, so you'll just have to wait for the next one. I hope that in spite of that ending, you've enjoyed this episode, and if not, then why not see if the next one is equally as bad? And do remember to leave your remarks and requests for other episodes on anchor.fm forward slash Robert Carnell. And as usual, if you haven't absolutely hated this, please forward the link to someone you think might also be able to tolerate my ramblings. So until next time, bye.